Thank you for listening to this sermon from Hope Church, Toronto West. It is our prayer that through these audio sermons, you are challenged and transformed by the Word of God, built up in love and faith, and drawn more to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We want to remind you that these online resources are never meant to be a substitute for God's good plan for you to be present, connected, and serving in a local church under the care of qualified elders. If you live in the West Toronto area and are looking for a local church, we encourage you to come check out one of our Sunday services. Now as you prepare your heart to receive God's word, we pray that His Spirit would use this sermon powerfully in your life. Amen. All right. So good to be together. We have a lot more coming throughout the rest of this service, and we pray again that the Lord will be preparing us for everything that's ahead. Okay, today we're continuing in our series that's entitled, uh, A Beautiful Design. God's intention for the family as the foundation of society. I think it's a timely series for our culture today. I want to remind you, we began our series by looking at the family as the foundational institution of society uh, established through marriage. We saw that a couple weeks ago. Last week, we looked at the family as the foundational institution of society commissioned to have children uh, physically and spiritually. We saw that uh, last week as well. And today we come to a very serious and a difficult subject. Today we look at the family as the foundational institution of society and the reality that the family has been devastated by sin. Devastated by sin. In Genesis 1 and 2, we've seen God's beautiful design. He designed and established the first marriage. We looked at that. He'd given the perfect couple the responsibility to be fruitful and to multiply and to subdue the earth. All was as it should be. The family as the foundation of this perfect and soon-to-be growing society. Until we get to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve had sinned in the garden. They transferred their trust and their allegiance and their confidence away from their God, and they engaged in the first act of idolatry. They believed the false promises of the serpent. They believed the lies of sin, and sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3. And as a result, we see that sin devastated the individual. Adam and Eve, who once walked securely with their God, were now plagued with fear and guilt and shame. Sin devastated the individual. But not only did sin devastate the individual, sin devastated the marriage relationship. When confronted by God, Adam is found, excuse me, relinquishing his leadership in the garden. And instead of protecting his wife, he resorts to blame shifting. Uh, She did it. It's, It's her fault. Sin devastated the marriage relationship. And when Eve was confronted by God, she does the same thing. Instead of taking responsibility for her actions, she blames the serpent. Sin has devastated not only the individual, But sin has devastated 
the marriage relationship. Finally, we go to Genesis chapter 4, and Genesis chapter 4 shows us that sin has not only devastated the individual, sin has not only devastated the marriage relationship, sin has devastated the entire family. Cain and Abel were born, and as they grow up, you know what happens. Without getting into all the details, Cain, in a jealous rage, murders his brother Abel because his brother was righteous and affirmed by God. Guilt and shame and fear and blame shifting and hiding, jealousy, murder. Sin has devastated the individual. Sin has devastated the marriage relationship, and sin has devastated the entire family. The very first murder takes place in the context of the very first family. And God's beautiful design is marred by sin. And sadly, the murder of Abel at the hands of his own brother Cain is not unique to this first family. But today, loved ones, the state of the family and the lives of millions of image bearers of God that deserve the chance to be part of a family are all under attack. This is what we're going to look at today. Today, we're going to look at the heavy and devastating and controversial issue of abortion. What is it? But more importantly, what does the Bible say about it specifically? What does the Bible say about the sanctity of human life? Why are we looking at this in the context of a series on the family? Well, because if the family is the foundational institution of society and the family is established through marriage and marriages are called to have children, then it matters supremely to families and ultimately to the survival of our civilization. That the very children we are entrusted with are cherished, cherished as image bearers of God, cherished and not destroyed. And so this issue, which is a hot topic in our culture, it's an immensely important issue as it pertains to the health of the family. And as we've been seeing, the health of the family as it pertains to the health of our society and our civilization. As one commentator said, if the family is in trouble, the society is in trouble. And we've been seeing during this series that the family in Canada is in trouble. And our society is as well. Now, right away, I have two aims that I want to make very clear. First aim in this message is this, to bring biblical clarity to the issue. I won't be able to address everything about the issue. I just don't have enough time. It's not meant to be exhaustive, but the aim is to bring biblical clarity. What does the Bible say? I'm not trying to get political here. I'm not trying to tackle all these different angles. We're going to talk about a lot, but the first aim I want you to know is that we want to bring biblical clarity. The second aim is important. I want to offer biblical clarity here on the issue, but the second aim is to offer gospel grace 
to every single person who has somehow been touched by this issue. We want to proclaim the word of God in all its truth, and we want to apply gospel grace. So if you're sitting here today and you've been touched by the issue of abortion or you have strong opinions about it, or maybe you heard me say abortion and you're squirming a little bit in your chair because somehow something has happened in your life, we want to offer gospel grace. So hope is on the way. Let's get started with this. On the screen, the Oxford English Dictionary defines abortion this way, important for us to understand what it is. Abortion is the procuring of premature delivery so as to destroy offspring. Abortion is the procuring of premature delivery so as to destroy offspring. In light of the dictionary's definition of abortion, I want you to consider the following statistics before we get into uh, God's word. In Canada, for example, abortion has been legal since 1967. And not only has abortion been legal, but there are no rules around when an abortion can take place. Just to give you some perspective, Canada is the only nation within the G7 with such a liberal understanding of the issue. Since 1970, approximately 3.2 million unborn babies have been aborted in Canada. According to the Canadian Association of Pregnancy Support Services, that means that one in four women in Canada will have had an abortion. One in four. The numbers are much worse in the United States. National Right to Life reports that from 1973 to 2008, almost 58 million abortions have been performed. That means that approximately one in three American women have had or will have an abortion at some point in their lives. Well, what about around the world? Well, according to the worldwide abortion statistics, More than 42 million abortions occur every year globally. That's 115,000 abortions every single day. To give you a sense of the impact, at that rate, it would take just 25 days to wipe out the entire population of Toronto. It's 25 days. Everyone in the city, gone. Further to that, and bringing it back home, a survey revealed that 77% of Canadians believe that abortion should be allowed. There's something fundamentally broken with our society. But what all these staggering statistics really mean, though, as you consider the debate, what do these shocking statistics uh, really mean? One in four in Canada, one in three in the United States, 42 million all over the world, the equivalent of the entire population of Toronto wiped out in 25 days. What does this mean? What do these numbers reflect? Do these numbers represent human lives? Do these statistics reflect actual babies? 
Many say no, but what does God say? And if you attend this church, you know that we care supremely what God says. Amen? Take your Bibles, please, and go to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, you can put up your hand, and one of the ushers would love to put a copy of God's Word into your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, that Bible will be our gift to you. We'd love you to take it home and read it and have your life transformed by the Word of God. Psalm 139, we're going to be reading verses 13 to 16. And what we have here is some of the most detailed verses in the entire Bible communicating exactly what God thinks about the unborn at every stage of their development. Psalm 139, starting from verse 13. Look at it with me. I'll read it. The psalmist says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. On the screen for you. Foundational to the health of the family and the society is the understanding that all human beings are made in the image of God, that all human life is precious to God, and that human life begins at conception. So point number one is this, from the moment of conception, you can write this down if you're taking notes, God's word tells us this, that God is creatively forming the embryo. From the moment of conception, the Bible tells us that God is creatively forming the embryo. Notice verses 13 to 14. The Bible says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Well, here the psalmist worships God for God's creative and wonderful work in the lives of real human beings while they are yet in the womb. He praises God for his active work, I want you to notice, of forming and knitting together the human life from the earliest moments of conception. Just consider knitting. You start with a ball of thread and a needle. There's nothing there. In a group that we were leading recently, one of our precious group members walked in wearing a beautiful sweater. She said she had knitted it together. 
And I remember looking at the sweater and thinking, that is phenomenal that you'd knit this sweater together. It looks like you purchased it from a store. This is how God works at the earliest stages. And just like you see a ball of yarn and a needle, and you can't visualize or think what that is worth. God, from the earliest stages, the Bible tells us, is knitting together human life, forming human life. What does this tell us? It tells us that God is sovereign even over the embryo, the embryo. Embryonic development is the part of the life cycle that begins just after fertilization of the female egg cell by the male sperm cell. That means that as soon as the male sperm cell fertilizes the female egg cell, God is miraculously and creatively and actively at work to form a real human life. A human life, by the way, that he knew of before the foundations of the world. The human life that is in God's heart and in God's mind. In fact, the miracle is undeniable. Right at implantation, the new life is composed of hundreds of cells and has already developed a protective hormone to prevent the mother's body from rejecting the unborn as some foreign tissue. It's a miracle. It's God's miracle that God is working. At 17 days, the human life has developed blood cells. At 18 days, occasional muscle pulsations occur. This is the forming of the heart. At 19 days, eyes begin to develop. At 20 days, the brain, the spinal cord, and the nervous system are all developing. At 21 days, the heart begins to beat. At 28 days, the backbone and 40 pairs of muscles are developed along the trunk of the human life. God begins to form and to knit together arms and legs. At 30 days, regular blood flow is evident within the vascular system. The ears and the nasal development have begun. God is forming the inward parts. He is knitting together a brand new baby. He is knitting together a human life, a life that is made in the image of God. And the psalmist considers this and proclaims, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The psalmist considers the love of God in creating him, the care of God, the creativity of God, the sovereignty of God, and all he can do is look to God and consider how God has worked while he was in the mother's womb, and all he can do is worship because that's all you can really do when you consider how marvelous God is and his miracle-working creative power. Foundational to the health of the family and the society is the understanding that all human beings are made in the image of God, that all human life is precious to God, that all human life begins at conception. From the moment of conception, God is creatively forming the embryo. Secondly, you can write this down. At the moment of conception, God is intricately building the frame. God is intricately building the frame. Notice verse 15. The psalmist says, My frame was not hidden from you 
when I was being made in secret, notice, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. In other words, with great detail and with great precision and with miracle working power, God forms the embryo and he intricately builds the frame in the womb. At six weeks, the baby's frame is one inch long. He's building the frame. At 42 days, the baby's skeleton is complete and the baby has reflexes. At 56 days, the baby's frame contains all its functioning organs. The stomach, the liver, the kidneys, the brain, everything is firmly formed and intact. At nine and ten weeks, the baby squints and swallows and moves their tiny tongue. At 11 and 12 weeks, the baby's arms and legs can move. Fingernails and toenails appear. The precious little baby inhales and exhales amniotic fluid. At 13 weeks, hair forms on the baby's head. At 14 weeks, the baby brings both hands together and can actually suck its thumb. Marvelous. Marvelous. At just 18 weeks, the baby's intricately formed frame is 12 inches long, and the mother can feel her baby move. Vocal cords start working, and the creatively formed baby can now cry. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, in the womb, at every stage, from the moment of conception, the male sperm fertilizing the female egg, forming the embryo, developing into a frame. God is making, God is building, God is designing, God is working on a human life that is made in his image, a human life that is so precious to him. A human life that he loves so much. Foundational to the health of the family and the society is the understanding that all human beings are made in the image of God. That all human life is precious to God. That all human life begins at conception. And from the moment of conception, God is creatively forming the embryo. God is intricately building the frame. Finally, this. From the moment of conception, write this down. God is sovereignly ordaining the days. God is sovereignly ordaining the days. Notice verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. I want you to understand what the psalmist is saying here. He's saying that, God sees the embryo. God sees the value of life. God loves the person in the womb. 
And as the male sperm fertilizes the female egg at the earliest moments of conception, God loves this precious child and has vested incalculable value. This baby is being formed in the very image of God. And every single one of their days is written down in God's book. He is sovereignly ordaining the days. There's a quick point here. You may be sitting here and you're facing some uncertainty in your life or facing some challenges in your life or some hardships that you're going through. Did you know that Psalm 139 is to garner worship in you today? Not only teaches us what God is doing in our lives from the moment of conception, but it teaches us this, that every one of your days were written. God loves you. God knows you. He knows you. He knows what you're going to do tomorrow. He knows what you're going to face this afternoon. He knows the trial and the difficulty that faces you a month from now. He knows what 2023 brings. Every one of your days were written. We were once. The baby, the embryo in the womb. And every single one of our days is written. Consider this. The baby in the womb, how tall will he be? What will her skin complexion look like? What color will her eyes be? Will she look like mom or will she look more like dad? Will he play sports or will he be musical? Will he do both? Will she go away to university or will she take a year off to work after high school? Will she go to high school? Who will she marry? How will he struggle? Will God call him to be a preacher or a teacher? Would God call her to travel around the world? Maybe she'll sing or maybe she'll draw or maybe she'll write or maybe she'll make people laugh or maybe she'll start a business. Will he live until... He's in his 90s like grandpa. Or will he die much earlier in his 40s like his uncle? In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. What does God say about the sanctity of life and the life in the womb? Well, God says that human life begins at conception. But sadly, and even surprisingly, this isn't even at the center of the debate anymore. Amazingly, proponents of the pro-choice side no longer argue this point. On the screen for you, Nancy Percy wrote, virtually no professional bioethicist denies that life begins at conception. That's remarkable. Faye Waddleton, the former president of Planned Parenthood, said, I think we've all deluded ourselves into believing that people don't know that abortion is killing. Yes, it kills a fetus. 
These are the people who are, or this is the person that is promoting abortion. So this, this understanding of life beginning at conception, it's, it's no longer at the center of the debate. Important for us to stop right here to acknowledge that the science is completely consistent with the Bible. Any honest person will agree. But sadly, agreeing on this point is not enough anymore. So what is the issue? If the science is consistent with God's word, and if this is agreed upon by even pro-choice advocates, why the great debate? Why then the millions and millions of abortions? Why the strong, hard political push? Well, this leads me to just two things I'm going to close with. Two things going to close by uncovering just two of the most sinister arguments and lies at the center of the abortion debate. You can write this down. Argument or lie number one is this. There may be life in the womb, but there is no personhood. That's what's being said. Sure, there's life there. Okay, we'll give you that but they say there's no personhood. The the embryo, they say, may constitute human life, but it's not a person. Why? Why? Well, one argument is that it's too small. It's too small. But of course the embryo is small. In its earliest stages, it's going to be small. Many of you in this room are taller than me. Does that make your life more valuable than mine? I happen to be bigger than just a small percentage of the population in the world. Does that make me more valuable than them? No. Since when does your body size determine your value or your personhood? Or the fetus may constitute a human life, but it's not a person because it's not fully developed. That's the argument. That's true. We were all less developed when we were embryos. Three-month-olds are less developed than toddlers, and toddlers are less developed than teenagers. But we don't think that we can kill those who are less developed than others. Or they say the fetus may constitute human life, but it's not a person because it's not conscious. It's not conscious. But if consciousness is used as a criteria for personhood, And what should we do with a man who's knocked unconscious in a car accident or a woman who's in a coma? Do they lose their personhood because they are not conscious? Of course not. Of course not. Or they say the fetus may constitute human life, but it's not a person because it's unborn. It's unborn. Well, Psalm 139 makes it clear. Where we are inside the womb, whether we're inside the womb or outside of the womb or anywhere else on the face of the earth has no bearing on who we are or what we are or our personhood. Our location matters not, whether in the womb or outside of the womb or in Toronto or in South Africa. It doesn't change personhood, but this is, The argument, my friend Craig Turnbull asks a good question. He says, how does a journey of eight inches down the birth canal change the essential nature of the unborn from being 
someone we can kill to someone we cannot. Or they say the fetus may constitute human life, but it's not a person because it can't live on its own. It's dependent. Yes, the baby in the womb is dependent on its mother. But since when does dependence on another human being mean we can kill you? What about a dependent elderly person? Can we kill them? What about dependent people with disabilities? Can we kill them? Of course not. Of course not. We don't think we can kill people who are dependent on others. Why do we think we can do that with an unborn baby who's dependent upon the mother in the womb? The argument, loved ones, that the embryo or the fetus is human life but not a person, therefore we can kill them, is remarkably inconsistent logically and certainly theologically. But this is the path that our society has taken. It does not have to be logical anymore. It does not have to be rational anymore. It doesn't even have to be scientific anymore, let alone theological and biblical. Our society is in trouble. Our world is in big trouble. God sees the human life, and I want you to see the dangerous arguments and the lies to place one's value not in the fact that they are made in the image of God, but on some other illogical metric. And Nancy Percy went on to say this. She wrote, the pro-choice position is exclusive. It says that some people don't measure up. They don't make the cut. They don't qualify for the rights of personhood. By contrast, I say the pro-life position is inclusive. If you are a member of the human race, you are in. You have the dignity and status of a full member of the moral community. And God says that human life and personhood reflecting the image of the creator begins at conception. To eliminate this life is tantamount to murdering someone in cold blood just because they are taller or shorter or disabled or in the hospital unconscious and on and on and on. Human life, personhood, the fact that we are made in the image of God, all of that value is endowed at the moment of conception. That's one sinister argument and lie at the center of the abortion debate. Here's a second one. Not only do they say it's human life, but it's not a person. They say this, uh, the issue is mainly about a woman's right to choose. They say that the issue is mainly about a woman's right to choose. And I would just suggest to you and commend this to you that that's packaging the issue in inappropriate packaging. First, they say, isn't it a woman's right to choose what to do with her own body? We believe in human rights. We believe in women's rights. Of course we do. We believe in the equality between men and women. Men and women are created by God, made in the image of God, equally created in the image of God. And this is the thing that the pro-choice advocates try to make people think that people who stand with life are saying that we're not for women's rights. That's not what we're saying at all. Of course we are. 
Of course we are, but that's not the issue. The problem with the argument is that according to God's word and science, in pregnancy, there are two bodies involved. There are two lives involved. In pregnancy, there are two different human beings involved with two different heartbeats, with two different genetic codes. And both people are made in the image of God. And both people are endowed with immense and equal value. And both people are precious to God. And the rights of both people matter. It's not about a woman's right to choose. But what if the baby has a birth defect? Shouldn't a woman get to choose whether she wants this kind of life for herself and for this baby? Isn't it somehow merciful to eliminate this baby? The problem with this argument is that it elevates quality of life over the sanctity of life. It argues with a wrong premise that the quality of life is supreme. That's what matters most. God's word says sanctity of life is supreme. Every life matters. Every human life at the moment of conception made in the image of God. God knows every one of their days. God loves them. They are precious. They're valuable. The sanctity of life. In fact, if you consider this this fact of whether a baby should be aborted because the baby has a birth defect. I want you to notice on the screen what Johnny Erickson Tata says, a woman who's living as a quadriplegic, who's being powerfully used by God. Listen to what she wrote. She wrote, our society has a fundamental fear of disability. And we are letting that fear drive everything from laws and policies to the quiet hints in the OBGYN offices that an unborn child is better off dead than disabled. True, disability is hard, but it can also powerfully unite a family. It can refine a family's character and set of values. It can force one to see the joy in simple achievements and pleasures. A disability can foster faith, a deeper prayer life, and a respect for God and his word. Most of all, it can force us into the arms of the Lord of grace. And this quadriplegic says, And that's a good thing, a very good thing. But what if the conception was forced? What if there was violence? Loved ones, the heart of God is deeply Grieved when a precious woman created in his image is victimized, assaulted, raped, abused. What a tragedy. And we need to do everything in our power 
as a church and as Christians to surround such women, to help such women, to care for such women, to connect such women to spiritual help and physical help and emotional help. This is where I'm speaking slower. And maybe even a little softer. Because if you're here and you've been touched somehow by this issue, it was not right. It was wrong. God loves you. And his grace, he wants to pour grace upon you. What if the conception was forced? Well, if we believe God's word, the right response in such a tragic circumstance is to punish the guilty, not to kill the innocent. The right response is to punish the guilty, but not to kill the innocent. And it is possible, loved ones, to preserve the life of the innocent unborn baby and simultaneously to bring justice by punishing the guilty father and to support the dear, precious, wounded mother to do all these things at the same time is possible. But here's the truth, loved ones. There simply aren't enough resources and support out there to educate and support women in their moment of fear and distress and pain and shame. And I can't understand because I haven't been there, but I know fear and pain and shame. But the truth is, loved ones, Because there are not enough resources, women are being told and statistics show increasingly pressured that their only option is abortion. There are so many statistics out there. I just don't have time to go through them. There's so many statistics, factual statistics out there that show that in many cases, women go to the abortion table in a case like this because they're so afraid. They're terrified. They feel ashamed. They're victimized. They don't know what else to do. And there's a gap. There's a hole. There's a chasm. There's not enough people in the church. There are not enough churches. There are not enough Bible-believing Christians who can step into that gap. But there's an abundance of organizations to stand in the gap and say, the way you fix this problem is you get rid of the baby. And in her moment of fear and terror and shame, She goes. Well, loved ones, this is so hard to talk about because of the thousands upon thousands of women that for this, this is not theoretical. It's not abstract. It's not a political issue to debate. For so many, this is a reality 
that brings about so many different emotions. Let me just say this. If you're a woman in this room who's been touched by this issue, it doesn't help you to watch a political debate. It just hurts you. It doesn't help you to hear just how wrong abortion is, although you need to hear the truth of it. But you may be helped to know today how much God loves you. You may be helped to know today how far-reaching this gospel is. That no matter what you have done or where you have been or how you did what you did, the grace of Jesus Christ can cover it all. You just need to come to him and find love and mercy and help and a God who understands and a God, the same God who formed you, who knitted you together, who saw your unformed substance, you, you who are injured or hurt or you who went to the abortion table, you who are so ashamed of that, you who are so burdened, you who can't get past it. God formed you. And God saw even this day. And God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to bear the penalty and weight of our sin so that in his death we can have a new life. There is so much hope for you, for all of us. And so, I did a lot of reading this week. There's just, there's so much we can do. There's just so much we can do. And as a church, I just, I just want the Lord to lead us in how we can increasingly bring awareness to this issue and how we can help. But for today, uh, two things. One immensely fundamental and powerful thing we can do is to pray. It's not a last resort. It's the most powerful thing we can do. Better to be on our knees in prayer than to be fired up in political debates about it. Better to be bathed in prayer and asking God to move than to allowing our hearts to get angry. But a second thing we can do as a church is we want to be available. If you're a woman in this place who's been so wounded and hurt, there's an email address that we created. It's grace at hopechurchtw.ca. If you need to talk about this, then on the other end of that email is going to be a very mature and strong and sound woman who would love to hear from you. If you want to hear more, you want to discuss your own circumstance, or you want to wrestle through your own feelings, I would encourage you, this is our way to open our arms to you, just send an email to grace at hopechurchtw.ca. And on the other side of that email, you will be met with gospel, grace, and mercy. And I pray that all of us 
would be people who offer that kind of grace. For more resources and information about Hope Church Toronto West, please visit hopechurchtw.ca.